Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. OMG. Let me tell you, I had an amazing lineup. Okay, it was kind of okay. It wasn't like the greatest lineup ever. And I decided to scrap it. This week, a lot has happened, but it's not really a lot of stuff that really needs in-depth conversation about. Like R. Kelly got locked up. It's about goddamn time. R. Kelly got free. I don't really understand why a daycare worker would bail out a man accused of sexually abusing and assaulting children. Did she not realize that her name was going to come out and people were going to start boycotting her place of business? She knows this is about to sink her battleship, right? This woman has been identified as a friend of R. Kelly. Do I not have the right kind of friends that I need in my life? I do have friends that are 100K liquid to bail me out. However, not one of them would bail me out with those kind of charges. Now, if my ass went and got locked up for, I don't know, protesting women's rights, somehow things get out of hand. And for whatever reason, I get locked up with a million dollar bail. Someone... I think would be like, you know what? D was out here fighting for the rights of the people. I'm going to go get D out of jail. I'm not going to just let her sit there. And just for the record, my daddy would be the first person to come get me. If I am accused of molesting a child, I think one child, people might give me the benefit of the doubt and be like, you know what? That's not, I've I've known Demetria 20 years. That's not the person that I know her to be. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. But once you start talking about three, four people and over a 20 year span of time, Ain't nobody bailing my ass out of jail and they shouldn't because if multiple people are accusing you of the same shit for 20 years, your ass did that shit. Allegedly. I got to say that so I don't get sued. But really? Seriously? So that was one of the topics. Oh, also, since we're talking about friend circles, where is my friend who introduces me to princes? Like, I always remember Meghan Markle talking about how she met Harry and she was like, oh, yeah, my friend introduced me. She was like, I was talking about I wanted to meet someone. And she was like, I know someone. And she was like, is he nice? And her friend was like, sure, he's great. And then she introduces her to one of the most eligible bachelors in the world who's a prince. And not even like a prince from like, you know, a prince from someplace you never heard of. Like a prince from where? Is that a real prince? Like from the British crown. Where are those friends? I don't need a friend who would bail me out if I had like child molestation charges because that's something wrong with you too. But a friend who knows a prince? It ain't got to be a British prince. A Nigerian prince? A Ghanaian prince? A prince with melanin. Like, I'm not just partial to just black men. Like, a, a prince with melanin is, is, is required. So that wasn't on the, the schedule. R. Kelly was. I wanted to talk about the Patriots owner. I can't even remember his name. The Patriots owner who got caught getting, like, a $75 hand job in a strip mall down in Florida. Sir, your ass is worth $3 billion. You couldn't employ someone to give you hand jobs. And he has like a 39-year-old girlfriend. I know you tricking on this chick and you're not even asking for like head or actual sex. You couldn't convince her to give you a good hand job? Or you just wanted like the feeling of forbidden, illicit, like this hand job from, I think the women were Asian. You know, you could pay somebody to do that. That would come to your home and probably be discreet, maybe? Today's expert and I actually got into a conversation about it and I'm going to roll the whole thing because it was a really great interview, which is why I scrapped my other topics. So the other two topics I had on the table were Kamala Harris on Joy Reid. She didn't really say much different than she said previously or that we haven't discussed here already. 
what was the other topic? There was, oh, the episode of This Is Us, uh, Bethany, which I haven't cried like that since William died. There's so much to unpack for me. And I think a lot of other people, because when I talked about it on Instagram, I was like, talk amongst yourselves because I'm inconsolable at this time. And many of you commented, oh my God, I am inconsolable as well. Like everybody cried. I'm still unpacking that. I was a mess. Mostly over teenage Bethany and her, I think, uncertainty when she was dancing, she wasn't quite good enough. And I think there was a part of her that thought like, oh, it's because I'm a black girl, because I'm shaped different, because I'm whatever. And then this black girl who's, whose shape is even more pronounced, which, you know, traditionally is not the shape of a, a ballerina. But then she comes in and she bests her. So I think that that I'm not quite good enough feeling is what was a trigger for me. And the idea of Wanting something that's unattainable because of your limitations perceived or otherwise. That's just my off top. I still have a lot to unpack there. Because when I tell you I cried like somebody died, like I boo hooed. I should probably just do a whole episode about the times I've cried for for This Is Us and, and what it means about my life. But yeah, there's something that I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly about that Bethany episode. So maybe I'll do it as a bonus episode when I figure out what it is and then am comfortable enough to share it with, you know, all of you who are listening right now. I'm trying to think what else was on the list. I think it was of inconsequence. Hold on, let me check. Bethany R. Kelly. Oh, Jesse Smollett. He was on this list. I'm so sick of talking about that man. I don't know where everyone really gets to the bottom of, did you do it? Did you not do it? Are the Nigerian brothers lying? Like, this has so many twists and turns. So those are the topics I was going to discuss. And I threw it out the window in order to talk about Billy Porter and his fabulous, fabulous gown at the Oscars. Billy Porter's gown elicited such a visceral response from people, men and women. So there were people who absolutely loved it and were just like, yes, Billy, be free, express yourself, right? I was one of those people. And there were other people who were like, this is offensive. It's an affront to masculinity. It's degrading to the image of the black man. It's emasculating. People went on and on and on. Like they were very, very angry. Mostly responses were from black men. I did see a, a few responses from, from black women. And I just wanted to unpack that. I am obviously not a black man. I am not a therapist. I am not an expert in black masculinity. However, there are black men, there are therapists, and there are experts in black masculinity. I found, and by found, I mean I asked people who would you recommend that I speak to, and his name came back to me. But I found Jason Nichols, who is a black man, and he is also a professor at my alma mater, the University of Maryland. And he would just so happen to teach a course on black masculinities. He uses it as a plural, which he'll explain why in the interview. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Nichols. He is an academic and artist with a range of interests, which include black masculinities, hip hop music, and dance. He is a full-time lecturer in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland College Park and was the longtime editor-in-chief of Words, Beats, and Life, the global journal of hip-hop culture. Funny enough, I know the founder. I remember when he founded it because all of us went to school together. 
Dr. Nichols is also the founder of the politically progressive social justice website, Diverse Patriots. He is also an accomplished author and public intellectual. His work has been featured in Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Latino Rebels, The Hill, NBC News, and many other prominent locations. He makes regular appearances on local television and cable news programs, including Fox News, where he's a regular. He likes to argue with the opposition. This interview is already done. And as I mentioned, I decided to scrap everything I had planned for the week after our interview concluded. And I'm going to read you off a short list of the topics we discussed. And I think that you might understand why. We discussed black masculinities. We chatted about white supremacy, fragile and toxic masculinity. Billy Porter and that fabulous ass gown. We talked about the guy who calls women bed wenches. You know who I'm referring to. I will not promote him by name. We talked about pick me's. We talked about Barack Obama. We talked about what black folks can discuss amongst black folks and what black folks can't discuss in public. That's a really interesting conversation. We talked about the responsibility of black men to fix each other. We talked about Disney princesses. We talked about so much more, but the thread through all of this was a deeper understanding of black masculinity and how it functions in a white supremacist state. Fascinating. Let's get into the interview. Hello. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Hold on one second here. Let me just turn off Michael Cohen. I can't even watch the whole thing right now. So I was focusing on, on uh, doing my notes, but the parts I saw, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I don't understand how all these people nuts. are writing checks <laughs> in yeah. like 2018 and 2019. I'm like, have you people never heard of cash? Like, Yeah, exactly. You want a prostitute, don't write a check. Was it Jerry Springer who wrote it, who did that like 20 years ago? You would think people would know by now. You would think, but but apparently, apparently not. Then like yeah. the Patriots owner and his like three billion getting like a cheap hand job in a strip mall. Right. I'm like, sir, you can pay someone to come to your house. You're paying for the discretion. I just... Right. Exactly. <sighs> but I think that was his thinking, though, was I'll go to this little strip mall where nobody will see me. People don't know who I am. They don't know the Patriots. And I'll just get, you know, I'll just get a quick one. Because if you if you pay a high, we were talking about this earlier, uh, me and Jonathan, if you pay a high price person, they're going to write a book about you later. You know what I mean? They're going to expose you. They're going to, you know, so these days, you know, it's funny. It used to be if you were wealthy and powerful, uh, you know, that would open up vast amounts of partners. If you're a wealthy and powerful woman, if that's what you wanted, or a wealthy, powerful man. Now, I think it's different. If you're wealthy and powerful, you better just pick your wife, be faithful the poor guys have the upper hand. I could see that because, yeah, I mean, there's enough women who have gone and written books after dealing with people or gone to the media. So I guess it was coming out one way or another. Oh, well. Yeah. yeah. This is so not the topic of today's conversation. <laughs> one, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I have many questions about men and masculinity and the reactions to dear Billy Porter in this gown at the Oscars. He is stirred up. I don't know if I want to call it insecurity or just call it conversation. He has stirred up a lot of conversation. He's He's been called a, a threat to, to masculinity. <laughs> he's emasculating. Um, this is a poor portrayal of black men. I'm like, most men you see are in pants and traditionally masculine clothes. But this one gown has set people off. So 
I have my opinions. I would love to get out of my own head and ask an expert, like, why are people so mad about this man in this dress? First of all, let me let me just say that I thought the dress was so dope. And I'm not a style person. I'm not a fashion person. I, I barely can match my socks. But I can tell you, that dress was incredibly dope. The grandiosity of it was just incredible. I think that going kind of to Robin uh, D'Angelo's book recently about white fragility, there's certainly male fragility. There's this idea that if something makes me uncomfortable in any way, then somehow it's incredibly wrong, it's incredibly offensive, and I have to have this outburst of emotion about it. So I think that that's really a, a big part of it is that some men were just made to feel uncomfortable. It shows the social construction of gender because there are many societies in Africa, if you want to talk about a, a dress being, you know, not just, you know, uh, not pants, you know, being open at the end, at the bottom, many societies in Africa, men wore dresses. Uh, Scottish people wear kilts. Uh, people in the Middle East wear thobes. I talked to my students about this you know, I teach a class on black masculinity and art, which was, this was right up our alley. We looked at the, the dress and I asked them, would this have caused an uproar if this were Janelle Monet? And she had worn something that was gender fluid. And the students said, no. It makes me wonder why it is that we have this big reaction to men when they step outside of the, the constraints of gender. You are basically saying that the European way of thinking is the right way. The, our European Eurocentric way of thinking about gender is the right and only way we can think about it. When you know that there have been third genders and people have played with you know gender throughout history. The idea that there are only two genders uh, is not something that was worldwide or is even worldwide today. There have been uh, many societies, even in Africa, one of them being in Madagascar, where they, you know, have recognized third and fourth genders. Billy Porter, in his interviews that I've read, I love the fact that he's like, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to wear what I want, which is something that you would think African-American people, African-American men would applaud, is the idea that what you wear, or what you want to do is, is your prerogative. And we have defended men for wearing what they want to wear, including hoodies. People try to say people in hoodies were thugs. And we've defended, no, it doesn't matter what you wear. I don't know why all of a sudden a man wears a dress and we're super offended. We as African-American men should be looking at this and defending Billy Porter. People like Bell Hooks and others have written about the social construction of gender and how some black men, particularly the, the group that we call no-teps, you know, I don't call them hoteps because hotep is a positive word, but the, the no-tep crowd and them getting all up in their feelings about it shows that even though that they claim these traditional African values, they're not really looking at traditional African societies and what they wore and their beliefs on gender and pre-colonial African societies where you had uh, gender fluidity, you had African leaders in certain parts of Africa where you had bisexual men who were in leadership positions, even emperors and princes and kings. It shows the, the, the strength of white supremacy over black people and, and over 
people who even think that they're trying to liberate themselves and, and think in an Afrocentric way, many ways are recreating the, the white supremacist constructions of, of gender and sexuality that we have. One of the questions that, that keeps coming up is that in an effort to assert themselves and build themselves up, Black men are essentially not looking for equality, especially with Black women, but they're looking to recreate the European power structure that oppresses them and everybody else. There's a scholar, her, his, well, her name, I believe now, she was born male. Her, her name is R.W. Connell. And she wrote about a concept called hegemonic masculinity. Part of hegemonic masculinity, the main part is that there's this ideal way to be a man. Usually that person is wealthy, athletic, handsome, all the ideals that you can think of that basically it's normative, but it's not normal. So it's something that we normalize and we set as a bar, but nobody really reaches it. And part of it is also whiteness. So black men automatically fall short of that. So even if you're Barack Obama and you've got all, you've got all those boxes checked, you're not white in a, in a society that values whiteness. So you're not going to reach that hegemonic ideal. So that causes men to try to em- emphasize other parts of masculinity that they can actually reach or that are, that are reachable. And part of hegemonic masculinity is the subordination of other people because it boosts you up. When you can't reach the ideal, you need to be boosted up. So what do you do? You subordinate women. You subordinate LGBT people. You, you want to make sure that you have an advantage over women. And what do you people use to argue for that is tradition. Do you think it's intentional, unconscious, or both? I think it's both. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Demetria. I, I'm a recovering sexist. I'm I'm learning about gender every day. I, you know, when we were at the University of Maryland, my views on gender are, were not what they are today. I I just got great instruction. I had a lot of sisters and a lot of black women and black women scholars who took me aside and were like, "Look here, young brother." You know, they didn't come out and say, look, you're trash, <laughs> you know what I mean? which I probably was. At the time, I was just thinking, this is the way the world is. If you ask me if I dislike women, of course not. I love women. You know, I don't despise gays, but I didn't want to be around them, you know, that kind of thing. And then you get the right instruction and you start to evolve. And I would have thought at the time that I was some sort of progressive thinker. So I think some of it is unconscious, but some of it is conscious. You got the Tariq Nasheeds of the world, and they consciously believe that in order for a society to work, men have to be at the top. And, and that was a lot of the black power rhetoric, not coming from you know major black power leaders, because we know people like members of the Panthers and all that, they were actually calling for LGBT rights. But there were elements out there that thought that the only way a society could work was if men were at the top. And why did they think that? Because that's the model that white supremacy has given them. There are also a lot of people who just need, you know, the right instruction and mentorship. And that's where I think other black men need to come in. That's that's where, you know, my role is. I was lucky to have women who came along and mentored me, but... Really, it wasn't their responsibility. Some black man should have come along. Some black, straight, cisgender man should have come along and and pulled me aside and said, look, brother, this isn't the way to go. It's interesting that you mentioned Tariq Nasheed. I 
for various reasons, never mention his name just because I like to pretend he doesn't exist. Um, (laughs) But for people, not specifically him, but people like him who are very entrenched in these traditional quote unquote ideas of masculinity, how do you fix that? Can that be fixed? For some people, I think, particularly when they're invested and they have a financial investment in, you know, these destructive ways of thinking and these reductive ways of thinking, which he obviously has, you know, he's made it, that's his business. That person, I think you can actually leave alone. But I would say the the way to start this is that brothers like me and, and, you know, other men who have, you know, who, who are, are learning and, and have gotten the right mentorship, we need to reach out to young brothers. Because number one, ab- about, you know, that, that particular person and, and people like him, when Hidden Colors came out, it has all kinds of factual errors in it, historical factual errors. I used to like clown that. And then a brother pulled me aside and said, look, you got to understand that's a gateway to consciousness. Just like, you know, the Nation of Islam would be the gateway to Orthodox Islam. I meet dudes on the street who you would stereotype as not being engaged or so-called conscious, but they'll tell you, yo, I own Hidden Colors, I saw it. And that's when you can actually start the conversation and start to actually help them to evolve to the next step. But instead, we take on this, this exasperation where we're like, oh, those brothers don't get it. They're unreachable or anything like that. And I, I don't think anything is farther from the truth. Does that mean that I, you know, everybody I talk to comes out seeing the light? No. But at least I'm willing to give it a shot. If I'm able to to get a couple of brothers to see this situation differently, to see women differently, to see LGBT brothers and sisters and non-gender binary people differently, then, you know, then I'm doing my part. Did you get a chance to see Barack Obama's speech at, I can't remember, My Brother's Keeper. <laughs> I, I didn't see it, but I read about it. Did you see the criticism of it? The criticism being that he talks down to Black people? Yes, that. that. I saw part of it, and then I read some of the highlights and before all the criticism came out, and I was like, okay, no gold chains, no bunch of women twerking. He was talking about hip-hop. I wasn't offended at all, but then the New York Times ran this piece about how Obama's talking down to Black people, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? kind of see where they're coming from with that. See, here's the thing. We have to understand, particularly with our with our positions, I have a lot of critiques for Black people, to be honest with you, that I don't put up on social media or that I don't say in public spaces. I don't know if you noticed, know but like I'm a regular on Fox News. I go on and I'm face to face with Tucker Carlson. The last thing I would ever do is criticize Black people. Barack Obama needs to understand there's certain things that he can say to brothers on a basketball court or certain things he can say to brothers in a closed church where the media isn't there and he's got a, a, a small meeting of black men or black women or whomever. What is it Malcolm said? Like, you don't argue out on the street. Everybody will call you uncouth. That's my only criticism for some of the things Obama said there. Because, I mean... Eight women twerking around you, that only happens in rap videos and and maybe in a strip club. But that's not, you know, that's not black men's real reality. I don't know any black man I call right now 
and he's sitting there with, with eight women twerking around you like, yo, dog, I'll call you back. That's not how it goes down. So, you know, for me, I think Barack Obama, he, he is 100% justified in having critiques and criticisms for young black men because that's what young black men need. They need to hear from successful black men and hear from somebody like Barack Obama. And I think it's dope that he will have those conversations. But I think there's a, there's a setting for it. Those are conversations we can have. And I would love for Barack Obama to lead those conversations. But it has to be in a closed setting. You know, you have no idea how many times I've gone into conservative media and, and they start quoting Obama. With all the, the Obama hate they have, they start quoting Obama about black people. And just to be clear, your reasoning for him not saying this publicly and saying it only in black spaces is what I'm hearing from you is that his words get weaponized against us. Yes. Okay. Not absolutely. just because we got to be mindful of like, oh, what will white people think? I don't, I don't care what, what white people think. So I care about this. First of all, weaponized against us is the big thing. But I, but I also care about how black people see themselves too. So even in a, in a black space, I think that there needs to be some some ways that you have to say it. You have to acknowledge the progress that we've made before you come with these scathing criticisms that make it seem like all black men are, are interested in is twerking and gold chains. That can influence, honestly, how young black people see themselves. Okay, just wanted to be clear, because some people be like, well, why can't yeah. he say it? Like, who cares if white people are listening? But the point is, is that when he says it specifically, it's used against us as, see, this is evidence because Barack Obama said it. I, I see a lot of conservative black folks who take these this same kind of, you know, line that black people are pathological. The Candace Owenses of the world, and they're gaining more and more influence. We have to have these conversations and have honest conversations about black men and about the progress that needs to be made. But I think that also they have to be careful conversations and well thought out and they should be held in black spaces. You talked about white fragility and you talked about how black men existing in, in white spaces and trying to recreate European power structures and the blackness holds them back for being the complete thing. All of that. Obviously, to me, there is a fragility to to masculinity, black masculinity specifically. And mm -hmm. I wondered, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. So when guys see this image of Billy Porter in this gown, they say it is it is threatening. It is um, it's an affront to masculinity. It's emasculating. And I'm trying to figure out why women don't have these same reactions to images of women, because it's not like we don't care about the image of black women, but like. Young Ma, when she came out, like she's very masculine. Women in mass didn't respond to say like, oh, she's, I don't even know what the equivalent word is for emasculating among women. Like defeminizing? I, I, I mean, guess we can make up a word. Yeah, but it's nothing that women ever say. Like women don't ever feel like something's taking our femininity away. But you very often hear about the fragile male ego or you hear about something's emasculating. Why is it that women don't respond to other, to various, I guess, expressions of womanhood in the same way? Non-traditional expressions of womanhood. You know, I had this conversation or similar conversation in my class. So we, we basically, we were, we were talking about, somehow we got into a conversation about sexuality. You know, I asked, you know, the, the cisgender gentlemen in the class, cisgender, heterosexual gentlemen in the class, if a woman has experiments 
with lesbianism and experiments with another woman, would you say that she's a lesbian? And pretty much all of them said no. And then I asked the, the cisgender heterosexual women and a few other people, but I asked them, what about if a man experiments with his sexuality, let's say he experiments in college, is, is he gay for life? And believe it or not, the majority of the women said, yes. Once you cross that line, you can't go back. This hege hegemonic ideal that I was saying earlier is damaging to men. They get hurt by it because the fact that they can't reach that ideal, whether it's economically, whether it's race, whether it's you're not fit, you're not handsome, whatever it is, maybe you're disabled, whatever, it creates this fragility. It creates this idea that you're, you're not good enough, so then you're, you're constantly afraid of anything that, that threatens you further. A woman making more money than you is just a reminder that you don't make enough money. And if you don't make enough money, then you're not really a man. It's, it's another indignity that patriarchy has created that hurts men. I think women, on the other hand, femininity is not hegemonic. It's emphasized. Um, and that's why it, a lot of times it hurts black women because the emphasized femininity, you know, we, we do things that, you know, make it seem like black women can't reach that either. Women, women's relationship to the, the power attached to an ideal is different. They're, they don't really have the same level of power. And so they're not trying to reach that level of power. So that gives them a little bit more freedom, you know, in terms of exploring, you know, sexuality, exploring gender, ex you know, expressing things. And there are, and by the way, there are people who will see a woman in a suit and say, you remember Linda Williams, right? No. What year did you graduate? 2000. Oh, so we graduated the same year. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out how I didn't know you. I mean, there were a lot of black people, but all the black people knew each other. I feel like I... I saw you, you were in, our, in my classes, because I was like, I, I, and you know, just to, you know, so your fans know, I was like, yo, she's bad. Who's that? And they were like, yo, that's Demetria. And you you had, and I remember you used to carry a big Moschino, Moschino, I don't know how to Yes, that was freshman year. You carried a Moschino bag. I was like, yo, who is that shorty with the Moschino bag? But you always used to look at me crazy. So I was like, oh, I ain't got a shot. What? I'm not even going to shoot it. Probably would have got rejected. But yeah, no, I, I remember you totally. And I remember the bag. That was that was the way I always talked about you. You know, I, I won't say who I talked about you to. But anyway, um, Linda Williams. what was I saying now? I'm, Linda Williams, yes. So Linda Williams was a lesbian professor in our department in African-American studies. She had written about and often spoke about students and other people have said that her being a lesbian, she was somehow destroying black families. Her personal choice was destroying the institution of black families. I'm sure you probably read, was it Woman, Women Redefining Difference? The, the, the Audre Lorde piece where, because, you know, everybody assigned it uh, when we were there. But, you know, Audre Lorde, where she was like, you know, people were saying that she was a lesbian in an interracial relationship and somehow that was destroying black families. Instead, what we need to do is expand the idea of what a black family means and what a black family looks like. So it's the same thing with gender. Women have a little more bandwidth in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of their expression.
men, it's so narrow. And that's one of the ways that masculinity or uh, hegemonic masculinity hurts men. Patriarchy hurts men. And that's the argument that I always make. It's in your own self-interest because you're probably not going to reach that hegemonic ideal, even if you have money, even if you're, you're in shape, there's something where you're going to fall short. To make sure that we understand that there's not one way to be masculine, I refer to it as masculinities. We all embody, including women, because masculinity is just not the possession of men, we all embody different masculinities in one day because masculinity is a performance. So the way I perform my masculinity when I am at work in a work meeting is different than I'm going to perform it when I go home to my family, which is different than the way I'll perform it when I'm out with my friends. And that's all in one day. That can be three different performances for masculinity. And that's why I'm so appreciative of what Billy Porter did, because now we have to have a conversation about what it means to be masculine or what it means to be feminine. Can men be feminine? Can, me can women be masculine? These are conversations that are so important. And men, because of this hegemonic ideal is so narrow, they are really afraid uh, of getting outside of it. Women have a little more freedom as far as that's concerned. And so that's not going to cause the big uproar. And the other reason is we don't pay as much attention to women, particularly black women. There's, there was uh, a scientific study where it said, you know, they were talking about in conversation, who gets listened to the least. Basically, they, they studied them. Women, you know, that you would talk, the person you, who was listening would then recount what it is you were saying. And black women, by far, were the ones who, who the subjects re retained the least amount of information from. So I think we just don't pay attention to black women the same way. What role do women play in maintaining, I'd say, the worst of masculinity, what we would call toxic masculinity? And I asked that question thinking about, I get a lot of women who we call pick me's on my site uh -huh. who just say anything that it's almost like regurgitating the same things that men say, even though mm -hmm. it's very destructive to them. And in the same way that, you know, men practice patriarchy, even though it's destructive to them. Like, so what mm -hmm. role do women play in this? Um, I think women women play a, a big role in it. You look at like, I'm forgetting which scholar said it, but it was something called the master-slave dialectic. And, and pretty much the idea is that there needs to be some sort of complicit behavior from a slave in order to maintain himself as a slave. The master needs some complicity from the slave on some level. What you, what you consider complicit can, be, can mean different things. But I think in order to maintain patriarchy, you need women to go along with it. And how do you do that is that we convince women that it is in their best interest. It goes back to, to Carter G. Woodson in The Miseducation of the Negro, where he says, you know, the, the famous metaphor of if you teach somebody to walk through the back door enough times, they'll go straight to the back door, even if they see other people walking through the front door. I think women are instrumental in maintaining this power structure. I believe there's more women, or at least more black women, than, than men. Our society uses the same tools that they use to, to make black people slaves. So what do they use? The Bible. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's the bastardization of, of 
religion, whether it's the Bible or Islam or whatever, you use that just as it was used to make better slaves. It tells women, this is your role. This is where you're supposed to be. We also tell women that men, men are supposed to be the heads of households and you're supposed to love, honor, and obey. These are the kind of things that we, uh, that we have ingrained in women's minds. And it starts very early with the way they're socialized. So one of the things that I did was I tried for my daughter, I tried really hard to ban her from some of the Disney stuff, like the Disney princess stuff. Didn't work, but I tried because Cinderella is, you know, she's basically trying to get chose. So she's like a pick me. Beauty and the Beast is is just an abusive relationship and a woman with Stockholm Syndrome. What's, what's the implicit message in there is you can change him. Just, just hold out. Even though he's being abusive and angry and violent, just stay there. He'll change if you work hard enough and it's your responsibility. And that's not what I want my daughter to, to internalize. Sleeping Beauty is basically a sexual assault. You know what I mean, he runs up and kisses a woman while she's not conscious. Recently, there was this case of some woman who has been in a coma and she got pregnant. Yes. You know I, what I'm saying? <laughs> like, she, got kind of the, she got raped? She got raped? Yeah. By, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she got raped while she was unconscious and ended up pregnant. And, and you know, it's almost the Sleeping Beauty concept. So, no, I don't, you know, I don't want my daughter to be raised thinking those sorts of things. Moana is okay because Moana doesn't have a prince. There's no prince involved. She saves the day. And, and my son, too. I don't want my son watching that stuff. I mean, like I said, I lost the battle. And partly because, you know, my partner, she's, you know, she was raised on the same stuff. And so she's arguing for tradition. Like you said, pick me. That's been ingrained in women's minds from day one. We have socialized them. And that's the power of media, the power of religion, you know, and a bastardization of religion. I'm not saying that because I know there's somebody who's going to quote 17 Bible verses in the comments. I'm not saying anything bad about Christianity. I'm talking about the way it's been perverted to uphold this form of patriarchy that's damaging to women, but women think that, they, that that's the right way to go. And they're being taught to walk through the back door, even though they see other people walking through the front door. It's uh, Lipsitz who says white supremacy is an equal opportunity employer. It's probably the only equal opportunity employer because it needs black people. It needs Latinos. You need women. Again, for patriarchy, you need black and brown people and yellow and red people for white supremacy. And the way we maintain that is through media. And that's why I think what you do is so important. And what, you know, what I do is so important. People ask me why I go on Fox, why I go on Blaze, why I go on, you know, all these conservative outlets is because I think we need to jump in there. You know what I mean? And we need to have these conversations. We can't let them just have them without our presence. Our presence. I'm scared of Fox, by the way. Like I do CNN and HLN and Good Morning America and MSNBC, but those are all like liberal friendly. I don't right. want you to see me come out my bag on Fox, like going off on somebody. <laughs> I guess I have kind of a sick sense of humor because I, you know, I find it funny. Like, I, I literally laugh in people's faces 
when they say something crazy. No one has came out, come out and called me, a, you know, a nigger or something like that. Then you might see a different reaction. But I find a lot of that stuff funny. Uh, you know, Fox, I mean, it's not as bad as you would think. Fox, usually it's the host who's conservative, you know, and they'll have one other conservative person. And I'm like, all right, I could, I could get jumped by two people. I can't get jumped by six. You'd be good. I've seen your stuff. I've read your stuff. You'd be, you would knock them out. All right, I'll look into it. <laughs> but thank you so much. Hey, anytime. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I, I told you that shit was fire, right? I don't lie. As usual, I'm going to put up a post on my Instagram and also on my blog, Instagram, Demetria L. Lucas, blog, DemetriaLLucas.com. So you can have a conversation because I think sometimes I think I talk about things and it's something you can nod along with and, you know, agree or disagree in your head. But other things I feel like are really worthy of a discussion. So um, please use my Instagram and my blog as spaces to share your thoughts, express your ideas some way, somehow. That's the whole point of all of this. So as always, thank you for listening greatly appreciate you if you like what you heard today please leave a kind review or give me some stars five is preferable and tell a friend that's all i ask for you that's the investment that i would like you to make so be well speak soon bye